Well, as we begin our time this morning, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, once again, we bow before you, understanding in great detail the need that we have upon you for our time here, for our understanding, that we would be impacted by your word, that it would not simply be that which we hear in our ears only, but we would be doers of it. And Lord, in the day and age in which we live, there is nothing more necessary for us than to know the truth. So we thank You that You can be trusted. At every place that man fails, he fails because he rejects You. And we can trust You and Your Word, for it leads us into all truth. And so we're grateful. Lord, attend to our time and attend to the glory of Your great name through it. In Christ's name, Amen. Well, please take your Bibles with me and return in them to our study of the book of Jude. I know a few weeks ago I fictitiously said we would end Jude a few weeks ago, and and we didn't, but I want to assure you this morning that this is the final message, at least currently in our study of June this morning. We have been spending over the last 10 weeks our time in this small little book, only 25 verses, and we have learned much over that time about the necessity of engagement in spiritual warfare. If I was to take a survey of all of us here today and those who are watching and ask whether any one of us here actually likes war, I am quite sure that all of us would say that we do not. We do not like war. We don't like physical warfare as humans. It costs a lot of resources. It amasses sadly, untold numbers of physical casualties, let alone the emotional and psychological impact that it has upon not just those who are fighting it, but those of the entire human race. It is, however, an unfortunate and yet necessary reality simply because of the existence of evil in the world. Evil cannot be allowed to advance. Evil cannot be allowed to control. Evil cannot be allowed to have its way upon the unsuspecting. And while war may have its effects upon a society, that effect lasts a relatively short time by way of comparison to the lasting effects of ongoing and unchallenged evil. In fact, war is an unpleasant but necessary reaction to the existence of evil. But worse yet than any physical war is the reality of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not simply enacted upon people of the earth, 
But spiritual attacks are actually aimed at God Himself. Those who are engaged in attacks against the things of God are attacking God. They hate God. They are those who live as if God is irrelevant to life. They live as if by their very life they deny the very existence of God with their words and how they actually go about life. And they are actually, in doing that, attacking God. And by virtue of attachment to God, they are also attacking those who are identified with God. Jesus made the rightful and strong claim to the disciples in the Gospels that if they hated Him, they would also hate those attached to Him. And therefore, you and I, who are Christians, are under attack from the forces of evil that ultimately hate God. And all of that thereby brings avenues whereby trouble can enter into the course of our very physical lives. In our own humanness, we don't want it that way. We don't like it that way. Even in our salvation, we would just like to be at actual peace with all men. But simply because of the reality of evil, we are at war. And over the past several weeks, as we have been studying in the book of Jude, Jude has been exhorting us to engage in this battle, this waging of a war, which is for the defending of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And of course, we understand by saying saints, he means those who know Jesus Christ by faith. He's not talking about icons in some religious church, in some place where they call people saints and identify people of saints through some false narrative by which they attribute to them something that is not true. He is not talking about that. He's talking about true believers in Jesus Christ. Now, one of the great difficulties in any kind of warfare is ensuring that there is a posture of readiness that is carried out by those who are and who will be fighting the war. This is one of the things by which our own military in this country goes through constant training. They train continuously so that they will be ready for war when physical war happens. And in the spiritual realm, it's no different. And so Jude, in his desire to have us ready for the war, he has told us not only that it is necessary, this war is necessary because it's a contention for the faith, but he has also identified those in this physical realm who we fight against. They are, he says, just by way of reminder, back in verse 4, they are ungodly persons. You notice that in the middle of verse 4. They are ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, licentiousness isn't a thought process. It isn't necessarily something only in the mind. It is the activity of life. 
Aselgia is the word in the original language. It is, it's a word for the conduct and character of a person. This is how they live. This is who they are in their conduct and their carrier. It's, it's a compound word in the original. It's selge, which is the original word, and then the a-negative prefix attached to it. When you have that ah before it, it negates what it says. And selge was the name of a city in Pisidia whose citizens excelled in this strict outward morality. It isn't, the city wasn't made up of people who were Christians. They just carried out life in this strictness of, of morality by their definition. So they had this moral outworking. Well, aselgeia is the no morals. Someone having no morals at all. An, an unbridled lust, if you will. A, a licentiousness about life. A lasciviousness within life. Shameless, outrageous lifestyle and it's used in in several places in scripture by the way and i'll just show you a few of these and what it 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 describes it as first peter 4 3 peter says for the time has already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the gentiles and by that he simply means those who are not after god that's what he's using the word ethne there having pursued a course here's the word of sensuality that's the same word aselgia that's the the sensuality this life of of license And what was that sensuality? It was carried out through their lust, their drunkenness, their carousals, their drinking parties, their abominable idolatries, it says. So this is their lifestyle. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, beginning in verse 1, he says, False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many, verse 2, will follow their alselgia, their sensuality, their lasciviousness, their, their unbridled desire for foolishness, if you will. Notice once again in verse 18 of chapter 2, 2 Peter, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires by sensuality, aselgia, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. So here you have those that we were talking about in Jude. They're close to the fire. They're barely escaping and they're enticing those by their license, by how they live. They throw under the bus the truth of God and define it in ways so that they can live licensed life or lascivious lives. Over in Galatians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul gives an entire list of the deeds of the flesh, the things that are evident, he says, and one of them is this, which he says are immorality, impurity, and aselgia, sensuality sensuality this is all license this is who they are this is how they live this is paul or jude the apostle paul and others identifying those who who live according to the lie notice in 
Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17, Paul said, I say therefore and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that's in them. Why are they ignorant? Because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous. Their heart is becoming more and more and more hard to the things of truth. That's his point. Having given themselves over to aselgia, to license, license, to lasciviousness, to this kind of living, sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. So this is the idea. This is who they are. And Jude goes a bit further even in his short little letter in his description in verse 16 of Jude when he says, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of advantage. Now all of that is simply telling us that this is a very different war. It is a war about and what is truth. This is the kind of war we are in. Jude says we are to contend for the faith. He's talking about truth. The truth. The body of truth that we have. This is a war that is about what is true. It is a war waged against the ideas and practices of worldliness that try to infiltrate and have infiltrated the church. It is a war about the faith. It is a war about how the church, the people of God, are to live for God as you and I sojourn here on this earth. What does that look like? How is that defined? Who has the right to say how that's defined? What does it look like in its outworking? So this is a war about who God is and about how God is to be understood. And therefore, from that understanding, then just how it is we are to live. This is the war that we are engaged in. And it is a war that is burning hot right now today in evangelicalism. It has been burning like that for a lot of years. And it is burning hot right now. We are at a war for truth. This whole idea of wokeism, this whole idea of intersectionality and critical race theory is a battle for truth. Make no mistake about it, that's what it is about. It is a battle about who's going to say what is right and what is wrong, who has authority to do that, and the idea behind it all and the philosophy behind it all is simply this. I want to be autonomous on my own. I want to make my own decisions, and I don't want to have any consequence or any responsibility for it. Those who are warring against this truth, those who are warring against what the Word of God says, say that you can live any way you wish. Jude says they are the grumblers when, they, when it is required of them to obey the truth. They grumble against that. They find fault in the truth. So in fact, they follow not after what is true, but after their own desires. 
Therefore, they speak with arrogance about their own experiences as if their experiences are truth and what defines truth. All the while desiring the following of those who give them an ear. They want to take advantage. That's why Jude says in verse 19, these are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly minded, devoid of the Spirit. They are devoid. They're worldly minded. Sukikos. They, they, they are thinking. Their thinking is born of all that which is natural. It is worldly thinking. James clearly says the wisdom from the world is demonic. Make no mistake about it, the philosophies of men that deny the truth of God's Word in huge ways and in subtle ways is simply born out of the pit of hell. It is satanic, it is demonic thought. Don't buy it. Don't be caught by it. This is what it is. It's of the nature and characteristics of unredeemed man. In other words, it is life that is being governed by that which is fallen. That which is of the fallen nature with its subjection and desires and passionate drive. That's what it is. And so it's a war of how life is to be lived and how life is to be defined. That's the war. It's a war on the truth. Which, in fact, is a war against God, which then is also a war against you and I who stand with God. Those whom God has called to Himself unto salvation through Jesus Christ. This is, beloved, this is spiritual terrorism. That's what it is. Spiritual terrorism. That's not too strong of a term. Because just like physical terrorists, the weapons of these enemies is secrecy. It's secrecy. Remember how Jude said it in verse 4? For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. That's the weapons of their warfare, secrecy. And verse 15, it is modification. He says, they, what? Have spoken against God. Right? God is going to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way and all of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. It's modification. It's, it's saying things about God that are not true. It's defining God in ways that God has not defined Himself. It is speaking about the Christian life and Christian living as if it's born out of a human mind rather than the mind of a divine God. It is defining salvation on the terms of man rather than on God's terms. It's saying that you better look at others through the color of their skin rather than what the Scripture is saying about the content of their heart. This is terrorism. And so Jude says they creep into the church under the guise of being one of us. And then, through subtle modifications to actual truth claims, they live out their unredeemed lives as if it is the truth. And they begin to have destructive effects upon those in the church. 
And because we know this, because we have been informed about this, and because we are aware of this happening even right now in our society and in evangelicalism, we ought to be ready. We ought to be ready. And even being ready isn't enough. Why? Because very often we begin to wonder to ourselves if maybe we can be deceived by them unknowingly. And in the end, we think, well, if I can be deceived by them unknowingly, then maybe my salvation isn't as secure as I once thought it was. Maybe I can lose my salvation. I mean, if the most dangerous terrorist is the one that's on the inside, the one that looks like everybody else but is secretly working to destroy in a subversive, secret, modifying kind of way, then how can I be protected from falling and failing to recognize it and being guarded from being trapped by it? I mean, if, if we think of it in a physical sense, having an army fighting on our behalf far away from us is good, As far as it keeps evil away. But an army far away is no good if the enemy is already inside. The only defense against this is to be individually prepared to recognize and to fight back. And so Jude has exhorted us about this in this final section. He has told us to remember Remember, remember verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we've been warned ahead of time so that we are not surprised when we discover this kind of reality undermining going on in the church. It should not surprise us. We should be saddened by it. We should be uh, horrified in many ways by it, but it should not surprise us. We have been warned about it. And because we are aware that it is on the premises already, that is already inside evangelicalism, then we must be diligent ourselves to cultivate our own spiritual maturity. We cannot just sit back and hope that somebody else will deal with the issue. We cannot just sit back and remain ignorant to the issue. We cannot get laxed about our own spiritual growth. We cannot take the day off. Spiritually speaking, we cannot just simply check out. We cannot just sit back and rely on the greater spiritual army of the church. Those who are leaders and those who are on the front lines and other Christians more mature than us. We cannot just sit back and let them deal with the enemy. Each one of us needs to be personally prepared to contend. That's Jude's whole point of this letter. The best way to do that is through personal spiritual growth. In other words, engage and exercise spiritual discipline. Engage and exercise those things you know you must do in order to be equipped. 
In other words, know the truth. Hold with conviction to those things which you have been taught. Don't, don't simply let them be eroded by some narrative that seems as if it might be right. When someone comes along and they teach and say something that seems to run across the very grain of what you have learned, then scrutinize it. Any theology worth its weight is willing to be scrutinized. Scrutinize it. Check it. Check it for its apparent validity by filtering it through the very rightly divided and understood Word of God. And if, if it be in error, then expose that. Expose it to them. Expose it to others. That's what Jude says. Set out on your own personal rescue mission. Set out on your own personal rescue mission. Right? Have mercy on some, he says, verse 22, who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Why do you do that? For the protection of the church, for the protection of those who have been caught in the mess. You have mercy on those who are doubters, the weak person who, who is confused by what is right. You go to them with the truth and help them understand the truth so they're not duped by what they're confused about. Others who are already in the fire of false teaching, you you make every effort to snatch them from the fire. You go there with the truth and and you expose them to the truth and and praying all along and trusting God that, that He would snatch them out of that fire. And when it comes to the ringleaders of those kinds of lies, you have mercy on them also. Mercy, the same way you had mercy on the others, you go with the truth and you go with severe caution because they are so dangerous. You share the truth with them. So when you're at home and that knock comes to the door and you go answer the door and there is the false teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses standing at your door, you begin to graciously share the truth with them. You share the truth with them. Don't just shut the door in their faith because there are some there who are doubters. There are some there who are caught in the fire. And when you talk to them and when you share the truth with them, surely they come back with somebody else more stronger than them, more well-versed than them, probably one of the ringleaders, and you cautiously share the truth with them. But you don't hang out with them. It's a very dangerous thing to be engaging those who are sold out to the lie. Now, if we're honest, as we think of all of this, we're probably wondering, even right now, as we're sitting here this morning, how can I have victory in all that? That sounds like a pretty hot war. Sounds like a pretty serious thing because, listen, we're sitting here this morning and some of us, if we're honest, are ill-equipped. We, we haven't done our necessary duty to, to encourage ourselves and to cultivate in ourselves those spiritual disciplines. And we, we don't know the truth as we ought to know the truth. And some of us, while being well equipped, the enemy is so slick, the enemy is so cunning, so subtle, so secretive, so manipulative, that surely, 
surely we're going to fail. We might even think that we can become an apostate ourselves. I mean, could we actually fail far enough to actually lose our salvation? And that's why these two final verses are so important for us to hear. That's why it's so important for us. Notice what Jude says in the last two verses of this great little book. I mean, if there ever was a need for an anchor for our soul, this is it. Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Remember how Jude started this letter? Back in verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He's writing to those who are kept. And now, here we are at the end. Just ten weeks later, here we are at the end. And Jude is wrapping up his argumentation. And he wants us to be encouraged. And in this grand sentence of worship to God, he states unequivocally that God's people will not be untimely or ultimately duped by apostasy. Why? Why? Well, not because of us. Not because we're intelligent. Not because we have something going for us that, that in and of ourselves has kept us there. Not because we're smart enough or we're more diligent enough to be in a place that somebody else is. No, our confidence and our victory is not found in our ability at all to be savvy enough to figure it all out and to uncover every covert operation and every subtle manipulation and redefinition of the truth. No, our confidence for victory is only in the power and faithfulness of God. In other words, when it's all said and done, when, when the liars have been exposed, when the truth prevails, which it will, when victory is accomplished, there will be only one who is worthy to be praised for the victory. We will praise the only one who is able to keep us from stumbling. And to make us stand in his presence blameless and with great joy. And it will be God. 
Why will you and I as believers, as true believers in Jesus Christ not fail? Because we are secure in and secured by God. That's why. This is a reality of the Christian faith, brothers and sisters. Right now as you think about it, if it was left up to you to remain saved, every single one of us right now would deny Christ. We would not remain saved. We could not remain saved. Why? Because we cannot. We could not save ourselves and we cannot keep ourselves. It is Jesus Christ, God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord who keeps us. Listen, Jude says to us that our perseverance is because of His, get this, preservation. Our perseverance is because of God's preservation. I hope you heard that. I hope you understand that. You and I can never be taken out of our salvation in Christ because it is God who keeps us from stumbling. It is God who does that. It is not you who does that. It is not me who does that. It is not somebody else in their coattails that we're riding on that does that. It is not the prayers of the saints that do that. It is not the church that does that. It is not anything that does that but God. In fact, Jude, by using the word stumbling here, Jude doesn't mean to, to be... He doesn't merely mean to be tripped up. As if you're walking down the street and, and, and the ground is unlevel at one point to another point and you don't see it and so you get tripped up by that. That's not what he's saying. No, he means to be tripped up so that you never recover. To be tripped up such a place that, that your entire life heads a different direction. In other words, that we somehow lose the salvation that the truth clearly tells us we cannot lose. To be tripped up by some slick redefinition of doctrine. To be tripped up by some foolish philosophy of men that comes along that causes us to fear. No, beloved, sometimes in the church we have conversations about our eternal security. And we praise God that we have those conversations. We're thankful that we talk about eternal security. But very often in those conversations, we actually forget that what we are talking about is the doctrine of God's preservation of us. Sometimes when we talk about eternal security, when we talk about the doctrine of perseverance, we think somehow it has to do with us. That somehow I must keep myself saved. That somehow in some kind of way, whatever, however large or however small, in some way, I'm the one who keeps me in this salvation. That I'm the one who produces whatever victory I might have or may not have. In other words, we're not saved because there was a day when we asked Jesus to come into our lives and then we went back to our old lives and lived however we wanted to live. No. No, that's a wrong view of what salvation is. Why? Because that view negates the doctrine of preservation. That view negates the doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which we should always revert to as the doctrine of preservation. Because the only reason you and I persevere is because God is preserving us. 
In other words, those who know Jesus Christ are those who continue in the faith. And they continue in the faith because the faith that they have is the faith that God gave them and nothing he does ever fails. You understand that? It is a gift of God, not of your own efforts, Ephesians 2 tells us. It is the faith that he has given you and that faith never fails. Why? Because what God does never fails. He keeps them in faith until they go to glory. And that's what Jude is saying here. Now to him who is able to keep you. See, when God is described here as the one who is able to keep us from stumbling, it means that He's the only one who has the ability to keep us in our faith, in Christ, and therefore in the truth. He's the only one. To Him who is able, dunamis. A lot of people describe that as dynamite. I don't know that that's necessarily what it means or where we got the word dynamite. It means God has the ability. To have the ability means you have the power. You are able. God has the ability to do that. Now I know what's going to happen. I, I know what's going on in our minds because it happens in my mind when I'm thinking through Scriptures and, I, and I'm studying the Scriptures and somebody's going to come up and say, well, well, doesn't James use the word stumble in James chapter 3 and verse 2 when he says we all stumble in many ways? Yes, yes, but that's not what James is talking about. James and Jude are not talking about the same things. What James is talking about is the fact that we all still sin, we all stumble, we all have sin, and we sin in different ways. Even though we are saved in Christ, even though we have a security in Christ with God, we still live here in the flesh, the war against the flesh is going on, and we still deal with our own flesh and our own fallenness. We still sin, but that's not what Jude is talking about here in verse 24. If Jude was saying that, then he would say, now to him who is able to keep you from ever sinning? And all of us would know experientially that can't be true, so right there we would just deny the Scriptures. Jude can't be saying that. Jude's not saying that. No. It's like I said a moment ago, he's talking here about the idea of falling so as to lose your salvation. You sin in such a way that you're stumbling, you're no longer saved. You buy off on the lies in such a way that you're no longer saved. You, you go and live this way and you never think about it again as if you lost your salvation. And that's not what Jude's talking about. Or that's not what, what, what uh, James is talking about. That is what Jude's talking about. He's not talking about falling away from salvation. He's able to keep you from that. You can't do that. You couldn't get in. You can't get out. So even though you and I can be sinful, God keeps us from falling away completely. And so all praise goes to God. Why? Because he's the one who's keeping us. He's the one who's doing that. He's doing that all the way to glory. Our salvation is a settled reality because of who God is. So think about it. Think about those who say you can lose your salvation. To say you can lose your salvation is a redefinition, a modification of the very character and nature of God. 
To say I can lose my salvation is to say that God isn't able to keep me. To say I can lose my salvation is to say that God doesn't have the power to keep me all the way to glory. That certainly He could save me as a power to save, but He doesn't have the power to keep me. That redefines who God is. That's a lie. So God is able to keep us, Jude says. I'm writing to those who are kept because of Him who is able to keep you. And then secondly, secondly, He says not only is He able to, to keep you and to keep you from stumbling unto the point of where you lose your salvation, that can never happen because that redefines who God is. But notice secondly, He is able to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. Now, if that phrase doesn't shock you, maybe, maybe you're not awake. God is not only able to keep us, but He is making us able to stand in His presence. How? Blameless. Blameless. Listen, God's holiness is a consuming fire, the Bible tells us. And because He is holy, He must expel anything that is unholy. Reminder, verse 15. He's going to execute judgment and convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds that they have done in an ungodly way of all their harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Ungodly, 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 ungodly. God must expel that. So I guess I could take another survey and just have us raise our hands and say, is anybody here ungodly? Anybody here ever act ungodly? All of us would raise our hands and say, well, absolutely, surely I've been ungodly. Well, then how in the world are you going to stand in God's presence? When Isaiah saw God, he became acutely aware of his own ungodliness. Isaiah 6, 5, he said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Why was Isaiah, the prophet of God, a holy man, someone seen as righteous in the community? Why was he so acutely aware of of the reality of his uncleanness? He said, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I've seen God for who He is. I've seen the glory and nature and reality of God for who He is. And when I put myself there, there's no way I can stand in His presence. There's no way I will be utterly consumed by the glory of God. And when the disciples of Jesus Christ, as He was ministering on the earth, when they saw the glory of Jesus Christ and heard the voice of God on the Mount of Olives, as Matthew 17 verse 5 says, they fell on their faces and were terrified. They saw the glory of God. They knew, we're done. It's over. That's what always amazes me when someone comes up with some foolish notion and story that they were just walking down the street with Jesus and everything was all great. Some foolish way like that. Listen, if you really saw Jesus Christ in His resurrected self in an unabashed way, you would fall down as a dead man. You wouldn't say, hey, Jesus, let's hang out. 
hey, I'm playing this video game, Minute War. You want to jump in with me? You wouldn't say any of that foolishness. That's the true response of every sinner before a holy God. And yet here is Jude telling us, we know we're sinful. We know we act sinfully. We know we're like James in James chapter 3 verse 2. We stumble in many ways. And yet here is Jude telling us that we will stand in his presence blameless with great joy. It seems very juxtaposed to Isaiah's stance. The only reason that we will be doing that is because he is able to make us stand blameless. He is able. We are not. He is able. That means, beloved, that we are faultless before God. That's what blameless means. Faultless. Unguilty. No stain. In other words, God has completely removed any vestige of sinfulness. Our new nature that we have now, one day will finally be joined with our immortal body and there will be no presence of sin. Praise God to that. There will be no more sin. And we will be blameless. Is it any wonder Jude would say, and you'll have great joy. There'll be no more. Boy, I hope so. I hope I get, listen, all of us are going to enter heaven smelling like smoke. Because God's the one who kept us from the fire. He enveloped us in the righteousness of his dear son, Jesus Christ, and we are standing there blameless. Why? Not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. And sure enough, we'll have mega joy. We can have joy in Christ here. We ought to have joy in Christ now because in Him we have been equipped by the Spirit to have victories over sin right now. We ought to have joy now. In fact, Paul said to the Philippian church, rejoice always. And again, I say rejoice. Rejoice right now. The war is every day. The war is on. It is every day. Every day we fight against our own flesh. Every day when we sin, we, we fight against it. And every day when we succumb to the sin that we choose to do, it robs us of our joy, does it not? One day we will be without sin. And every day will be great joy. There will be no diminishing of our joy and so, beloved, from the perspective of the apostate battlefield that we now walk in, there are landmines everywhere. Everywhere. They're in the bookstores. They're on the TV screens. They're in the radio waves. They're in papers. They're on the Internet. They're in colleges and seminaries. Things that could upend a person's faith and each and every one of us knows that we lack the 
inherent ability in and of ourselves to navigate through that minefield with any kind of personal success. We, we couldn't do it. We couldn't get through it. We couldn't figure it out. We couldn't ride the right path without being destroyed ourselves. And therefore, we, must re- re- we have to realize that He is the one who keeps us safe. He's keeping us. He is the one fashioning us for being able to stand in His presence. He is the one who is preparing us to stand faultless on the other side. And so Jude says, he's the only one who gets the praise. He's the only one who gets the praise. And we can offer praise because we can know and do know truth. We do know truth because we have been known by the one who is truth. We've been rescued from the lies of sin. We've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the domain of His dear Son. God is light. We've been transferred from darkness to light. We've been delivered to the true God. And we don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve any of it. We know the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's why Jude says what he says, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Therefore, to him we offer all praise. It's through Jesus Christ. It's not through efforts. It's not through anything else. It's through Jesus Christ. To him, he says, be glory. Glory, the sum total of who God is. That's glory. That's his glory. Moses said, I want to see who you are. And God passed by him all his very attributes. The sum total of who he is by his very nature and character are so pure. Shine forth his very glory. We praise God rightly when we see God for who he is. And as he has described himself, not as we redefine him. Not as we, by our own foolish definitions of God, diminish him. All we do there is create a God who is not the God of the Bible and we cannot worship that God. The only God, our Savior, is a God of full glory. To Him be glory, to Him be majesty. Majesty simply speaks of His kingship. He is the king. He is the ruler. He rules over all that He has created and He is to be honored and submitted to as the ruler of all that He has created. He is the king. We don't get to choose. We don't get to just say, well, yes, he saved me, but I'll go live the way I want to live. No, no, that isn't rulership. That's not his majesty. You worship his majesty by obeying him. To him be glory. To him be majesty. To him be third, dominion. Dominion, that that links up with his majesty. That means he is The God over all things, everything and everyone, even and especially the reprobate who rejects him, God is over. And there is coming a day, Philippians 2 says, when every tongue will confess, every knee will bow and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. He rules over all people. He rules over hell. He rules over heaven. And he rules over every other part of the universe, every moment of every created day. He is omnipresent, He is omniscient, He is omnipotent. And therefore to Him be authority, authority. 
That is simply to say that what God commands always gets done. God is the authority, whether man wants to embrace it or not. God is the authority. Today, it's, it's free reign in our country and in our world to deny authority, to be autonomous of myself. I want to be my own authority and I want to have no consequences and no responsibility. I can say what I want, do what I want, and no one else can speak to my life. No authority rules over me. And yet here Jude says to him, God, our only God and Savior is all authority. His ultimate will cannot be resisted. There has never been a moment without God and there never will be. To Him be all glory and majesty and dominion and authority. Every apostate in big and small ways and subtle ways and in great ways rejects those truths. They reject it. And so Jude ends by saying, Amen. Amen. He is before all time. He is now and he is forever. Amen. That simply is to say, this is true. This is true. What better way to finish than to know that while war may be hot and war may be heavy at times in and amongst us against the truth, we will not fail. God's church will prevail. You and I will not fail because God is sustaining and carrying us. We must do our part. We must fight. We must contend. We must remain close to the truth. We must be equipped. We must be matured in the truth. But always know that this is God's war. This is God's war. And He never loses the battle. And He never loses His soldiers. Ever. So, like the title of my message was this morning, where is the confidence for us in the midst of apostasy? Our confidence is in the Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. In just a moment, we're going to have communion, but I want to read the words of a song that just came to my mind as I was thinking about this passage in light of all that we've learned, just as a close before we pray. You know it well. We love this song in this church. Maybe you had it on your mind as you were thinking about it. It's 388 in our hymnal. He will hold me fast. The writer got it right. He said, when I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I would never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. For my life, He bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He 
will hold me fast. Raised with him to endless life, he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last. Let's pray. Father, we certainly are grateful for our study of Jude. What a privilege it's been just to, just to spend these few weeks in this small little letter, but such power, such power. Lord, we know that there are enemies against the church, enemies against you, who in subtle ways try to infiltrate and devise ways to draw us away, seeking after their own self, seeking after advantage. And Lord, we're thankful that you protect that you are sovereign over all things. You're sovereign over us as you are sovereign over the battlefield. And while we may be taken out of this life, in a physical sense, we can never be taken out of your hands, secure in our spiritual life. For what they do to us is nothing compared to our life with you in eternity. For we will be with you blameless and with great joy. Oh Lord, help us to exude that joy right now amongst the battle, in the midst of it, as we see things, as we fight against things, as we proclaim the truth, as we earnestly contend for the faith that you have delivered to us. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to rightly divide it so that we might know what you mean by what you say, so that we can confront where it's needed gently and with compassion humility knowing that we could be caught in the same trap Lord give us wisdom and help us to filter all things through the counsel and wisdom of your word for the glory of your great name we pray these things because of our Savior Jesus Christ who is truth all God's people said Amen